This evening, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce um, this year's pre presenter for the McIntyre Lecture, Sabah Mahmoud. The McIntyre Lecture was established in honor of the memory of Helen Pond McIntyre by her good friend and classmate, classmate, trustee emerita, and longtime supporter of the center, Eleanor Thomas Elliott. Um, she donated this lectureship in order to present each year to the Barnard community the best new work in women's studies, um, and it was her firm belief that one of the best ways to honor Helen Pond McIntyre's contributions to the world was through the combination of scholarship and feminism that this lecture represents. In the five short years since the institution of the lecture, we have been fortunate enough to host Catherine Stimson, Patricia Williams, Anne Fausto Sterling, Dorothy Q. Thomas, and last year, Angela Davis. And I will note that Angela Davis spoke at about this time last year um, in October on the eve of um, Obama's election. Um, and she has very interesting things to say about that in addition to her longstanding work on prisons. And you can find that on our website or through our Facebook page. Um, and it's broken up into the different topics of the lecture, so I recommend you um, looking at that if you, did, if you weren't there here last year. Um, and now we welcome Sabah Mahmoud to this um, esteemed lineup. Professor Mahmoud is professor, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley, and she is the author, as I think many of you know, of Politics of Piety, the Islamic Revival, and the Feminist Subject which won the Victoria Shuck Award from the American Association of Political Science. It would, I think, be difficult to underestimate the import and the impact of this particular book on feminist inquiry across a range of disciplines. You will note, for example, that while Professor Mahmoud is an anthropologist, it won an award in political science. I also had the pleasure of participating on a panel in response to the book in my own field of religion at the American Academy of Religion, and so on. There are a number of reasons, in addition to simply the high quality of the book, for the wide-ranging reception that it has received. It addresses issues that not only touch on a number of academic fields, but that also have immense public import in today's world. Issues, for example, about the status of secularism, a crucial question in a world that is once again lined up to fight wars over the relation between religion and secularism or it has been so lined up at least since the fall of 2001 when Andrew Sullivan declared in the pages of the New York Times Magazine that the imminent U.S. invasion of Afghanistan was a war of, to him, good secularism against bad religion. This is clearly not an issue that went away in the 16th century with the end of what the religious studies literature calls the wars of religion. And so for our topic tonight, um, and as for our topic tonight, the book makes a crucial intervention into feminist study, particularly vis-a-vis -vis questions of women's subjectivity and agency in relation to feminist ethics. Mahmoud shows how traditional, as in traditionally feminist, analyses of women's agency, that the position the moral agent as necessarily the subject of liberal secularism can obscure and sometimes even name as unfeminist some of the myriad ways in which women pursue the project of human flourishing. And perhaps most important, as the title of the book, Politics of Piety, indicates, the analysis that Professor Mahmoud offers in the book makes crucial connections between religious ethics, that which is often deeply felt and highly personal, and the political discourses that enable and constrain such ethics, and that are in turn built in and through struggles over ethical commitments, be they pietistic, secularist, or both. The lecture that she will present to us this evening extends her analysis of these connections 
by moving across the bridge from her project in Politics of Piety um, and on to her new research based on fieldwork conducted in Egypt last year. The talk will enlarge the project of connecting religious ethics to political discourse by taking up the question of religious freedom. Freedom is a category that is simultaneously ethical and political, and that is also a paradigmatic marker of Euro-American secularism, does much of the work of ethically legitimating the political formations, including the gender relations that are thought to flow naturally from that secularism. So with a slight shift in title tonight from Should Religious Ethics Matter to Feminist Politics to The Politics of Freedom, Geopolitics, Minority Rights, and Gender, Professor Mahmoud will undoubtedly help all of us here this evening to see the world around us and the place of feminism within that world in a different way. Sabah Mahmoud. Thank you for that generous introduction, Janet. And uh, it's really a privilege and a pleasure to be here. This is my first visit to Barnard, and it is uh, very flattering that it's Barnard Center for Research in Women that's hosting me. Um, I would like to thank Janet Jacobson for inviting me, and particularly Nefeti Tadiar, who actually initiated this invitation almost two years ago. So we are finally come around to meeting again. And thank you all for coming. The right to religious freedom is widely regarded as a crowning achievement of secular liberal democracies one that guarantees the peaceful coexistence of religiously diverse populations. Enshrined in national constitutions and international laws and treaties, the right to religious liberty promises to ensure two stable goods. One, the ability to choose one's religion freely without coercion by the state, church, or an individual. And two, the creation of a polity in which one's economic, civil, legal or political status is unaffected by one's religious beliefs. While all members of our polity are supposed to be protected by this right, modern wisdom has it that religious minorities are its greatest beneficiaries, and their ability to practice their traditions without fear of reprisal is a key marker of a tolerant and civilized polity. The right to religious freedom marks an important distinction between liberal secularism and the kind practiced in uh, in authoritarian states, such as China, Syria, or the former Soviet Union. While such states abide by the separation of religion and state, a central principle of political secularism, they also regularly abrogate religious freedoms of their minority and majority populations. Liberal secular states, while they regulate religious life, must constantly counterbalance this regulation with the individual's right to practice his or her religion freely without coercion or state intervention. Now, while the right to religious liberty has long commanded the attention of academics and policy analysts, it is only recently in the last decade that religious freedom has come to acquire a particular salience in popular discourse. We are constantly exposed to media coverage of the persecution of Buddhists in Tibet, Christians and Muslims in India, animists in Sudan, and Baha'is in Iran, all of which serves to secure a sense of distinction among Europeans and Americans about the tolerance with which religious minorities in their own societies are treated. This sense of superiority, however, has come under some strain recently, 
as liberal Americans have come to recognize that the ascendance of evangelical and neoconservative Christians poses a serious threat to the claim to religious tolerance. And that religious fundamentalism is a feature not only of non-Western societies, but also a growing aspect of the current American landscape. It would seem that the confident line Samuel Huntington had once drawn between us, liberal and tolerant West, and them, the authoritarian, religiously zealous non-West, is not as easy to uphold as it once appeared. While most liberal Americans have come to countenance the dominant role Christianity now plays in national politics, the extent to which it shapes and guides U.S. foreign policy is far less appreciated. This is in part because there is a sense that foreign policy in general is subject to the calculus and rationale of realpolitik, rather than theistic agendas or concerns. Yet a quick glance at the historical trajectory of the right to religious liberty and international law and European and American diplomacy shows that the two cannot be so easily separated. Consider, for example, the passage of the International Religious Freedom Act by the U.S. Congress in 1998 under President Clinton, which mandates the U.S. State Department to monitor incidents of religious persecution worldwide and authorizes the President of the United States to censure, through diplomatic or economic means, states that are found to be guilty. It also establishes an Office of Religious Freedom and a designated position of an ambassador to the office. As Elizabeth Castelli's work shows, the Christian evangelical movement was largely responsible for the passage of this act, and its subsequent implementation remains clearly biased towards protecting Christian minorities living in non-Christian, particularly Muslim-majority societies. This policy continues to inform the priorities of the current State Department under President Obama. While I will return to this issue in detail later, here I want to stress the importance of thinking critically about the reemergence of the discourse on the right to religious freedom and its complex relationship with the geopolitical inequalities of the Western and non-Western world. I want to explore with you today the conditions of emergence of the current emphasis on religious freedom, particularly as it pertains to the persecution and protection of religious minorities in the Middle East. Difficult questions are at stake in such an undertaking. On the one hand, there is no doubt that physical and discriminatory attacks against religious and ethnic minorities are widespread in the world today, whether it is the organized pogroms against the Muslim minority in India and earlier in Bosnia, or the persecution of Baha'is in Iran and Christians in Egypt and Nigeria. It is clear that the last several decades that in the last several decades, religious and ethnic minorities have come under increasingly brutal attacks in a manner that seemed inconceivable at the end of the Second World War. On the other hand, one cannot treat the fact of religious persecution of minorities as simply a sign of increased intolerance of contemporary societies. Rather, one must also think critically about conditions of secular liberal governance, both national and international, that define what counts as an act of religious persecution. In pondering interreligious strife today, I want to suggest the relevant question is not so much what inhibits the realization of religious freedom, as if religious freedom is an ahistorical and universally valid good, but how the national and international regulation and protection of religious minorities makes specific notions of freedom and unfreedom possible and imaginable. 
In asking you to ponder this question, I would like us to move away from the simplistic and banal assumption that certain religions and cultures are more tolerant towards religious minorities than others. I would urge us to think instead about what is the political and legal history of the emergence of the concept of religious freedom. What are the conditions of geopolitical power that have allowed for its globalization? And how has this universally recognized liberal right come to affect the religious majority and minority populations of the modern state differently? As I will show, the emergence of the concept of religious freedom is intimately tied to the history of European domination of the non-Western world, wherein their concern for religious minorities has served as a crucial argument and pretext for the exercise of European power. My interest in tracing this history lies in showing how the right to religious freedom is not simply a moral good produced by the secular liberal state, but complexly intertwined with geopolitical inequalities and the emergence of a secular international political order in which the peculiarity of the nation state plays a crucial role. The passage of the International Religious Freedom Act and its implementation by the U.S. State Department needs to be seen within this context. In the second half of my talk, I will focus on how this history is relevant to the contemporary struggles for religious freedom among the largest Christian minority living in the Middle East, namely the Coptic Christians in Egypt. In the process, I hope to offer some reflections on how the historical accommodation reached between the modern state and non-Muslim minorities in Egypt makes gender a particularly volatile and vicious site of sectarian, intersectarian, interreligious strife. The signing of the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 is often marked as the moment of the emergence of the concept of religious liberty that not only brought an end to almost 100 years of religious warfare among Christians, but also created a political order in which subjects of a state were allowed to hold religious beliefs different from the ruler. While some historians note that this right was only extended to Lutherans, Calvinists, and Catholics, Others see the Peace of Westphalia as an important precursor for the moral arguments for religious toleration set out by John Locke almost 40 years later. Astute analysts, however, point out that the Peace of Westphalia was a treaty that secured the conditions for the emergence of a new political arrangement, one which settled long-standing territorial disputes and granted formal independence to polities struggling to be free from the Holy Roman Empire, such as the Netherlands, uh, Switzerland, Savoy, and Milan. In addition to its association with religious liberty, the Peace of Westphalia also marks an inaugural moment in the eventual establishment of the sovereign state and its exclusive right to control its territory and subjects free from outside intervention and control. What I want to stress here is that the originary moment of the concept of religious liberty in European history is deeply intertwined with the establishment of the principle of state sovereignty territorial exchange between warring parties, and the creation of an international and national protocol for handling religious minorities, or what used to be called religious dissidents in an earlier age. Subsequent development of the concept of religious liberty continues to remain beholden to this history with one important exception. The introduction of the principle and practice of religious liberty to non-Western lands was often predicated upon the violation and subjugation of the principle of state sovereignty, instead of its consolidation as in the case of the Peace of Westphalia. 
Consider, for example, the repeated attempts by Christian European rulers to assert their right to protect Christian minorities within the Ottoman Empire throughout the 16th century. As long as the empire was strong, it was able to accommodate these pressures without compromising its sovereignty. But once Ottoman power started to decline, the major European states used coercion to secure rights and privileges for Christians. Two treaties, the Treaty of Paris in 1856 and the Congress of Berlin in 1878, both are heralded as landmarks in securing the rights of religious minorities in the international arena. Notably, both treaties were predicated upon the subjugation of the defeated countries to accept European conditions, of which a key aspect was the protection of religious minorities. The ostensible aim of the Congress of Berlin in 1878, following the Russo-Turkish War, was to reorganize the countries of the Balkans as a means of curtailing the threat of pan-Slavic nationalism. Among the key conditions European powers stipulated in return for recognition of the newly emergent states, and these were Romania, Bulgaria, Montenegro, and Serbia, were rights for religious minorities. These were all breakaway states from the crumbling Ottoman Empire at the time that which had little power to negotiate the terms of the recognition, particularly by the ascendant European powers at the time. As Stephen Krasner notes, since the time of Peace of Westphalia, the enumeration of rights for religious minorities, especially when territory changed hands, has become a routine part of Eastern European diplomacy toward those it globally dominated. There are two points I want to clarify at this stage of my argument. First, the terms of the Congress of Berlin and Treaty of Paris did not simply secure privileges for Christians. The right to religious liberty was often extended to other religious minorities, as this article from the Congress of Berlin signed with the Ottomans makes clear. The second point I wish to emphasize is that the European powers' championing of religious and ethnic minority rights cannot be understood simply as the distribution of a moral good that they had discovered for themselves, which they now sought to make universal. For example... The victors in the Second World War, particularly the United States and Britain, while they made it incumbent upon the states that had lost the war to accept provisions for minorities, they accepted no such accommodations for the protection of racial or ethnic minorities within their own societies, such as the Welsh and Irish in Britain or blacks and Asians in the United States. Similarly, France, which has been a protagonist in many of these international treaties, maintains to this day that it has no minorities living within its borders that fit the description of the term in the United Nations Convention on Civil and Political Rights. The European powers' championing of minority rights was motivated by far more strategic concerns, key among them the maintenance of regional and national security. The European powers feared that subjugated ethnic and religious minorities posed a threat to, religious, to the region's stability, particularly if they rose up to claim national independence, upsetting the international status quo and provoking retaliation and violence in response. In addition, the forceful promulgation of minority rights upon weaker states through bilateral treaties provided European states a power legal justification to intervene in the internal affairs of another country. And finally, by securing protections and privileges for Christian minorities living in the Ottoman territories, the French and the British sought to secure allies who could be relied upon to further colonial interests. 
This did not, of course, always work, as the history of Middle Eastern Christianity amply demonstrates. But when it did, as was the case in Lebanon, it created powerful indigenous allies that eventually paved the way for colonial occupation and intervention in later years. In summary, in so much as the principle of minority rights has become a part of the rationality of international governance, it has served as a crucial means of reordering political units and territorial boundaries and maintaining the hegemony of European powers globally. Many of these factors continue to inform European diplomacy well into the first half of the 20th century. Keeping with the earlier pattern, the Treaty of Versailles stands out as the ultimate example. At the end of the First World War, all of the new states that were created, or the polities that had their boundaries redrawn, signed agreements or made unilateral pledges regarding the protection of religious and ethnic minorities within their own boundaries. Unlike the Berlin settlements, Unlike the uh, Congress of Berlin, the Versailles arrangement provided for elaborate monitoring and enforcement through the League of Nations and the International Court of Justice. Neither the U.S. nor Britain, as I suggested earlier, accepted similar provisions in regard to their own minorities. As we all know, the fallout from the Versailles settlement exposed Europe to unparalleled strife and destruction in the Second World War. Apart from the fact that Hitler's invasion of Czechoslovakia was based on the protection of the German minority living in Sudentaland, the League of Nations failed in its mandate to prevent the war. In the post-World War II period, minority rights discourse was largely discarded until its recent reappearance with the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1989. An important factor in the discrediting of this discourse was the emergence of the United States as the dominant power in the international system one which had no place for minority rights. American identity was grounded in the mutual acceptance of Lockean political values, which ennobled the individual. As a right, minority rights were not mentioned in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 and were noted only in a small number of other UN accords, such as the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Genocide Convention. In fact, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the author of the 1948 document, specifically argued against using the term minority. The virtual abandonment of minority rights after the Second World War reflected the preferences and power of the United States and the general disillusionment with the interwar experience. In 1992, the General Assembly passed the Declaration on the Rights of Persons Belonging to National or Ethnic, Religious, and Linguistic Minorities. It was the first post-World War II convention for which minorities were the primary concern. In a manner strongly reminiscent of the interwar treaties, the European community's recognition of the successor states of Yugoslavia, interestingly enough, has also been made conditional upon the inclusion of minority rights. There are two main articles of the UN Charter on Human Rights that form the backbone of the current debate on religious freedom of minorities. The first is Article 18, which enshrines an individualist conception of the right to religious freedom and belief, a conception that also informs the 1981 Declaration of all forms of intolerance and discrimination based on religion or belief. The second pertinent article is Article 27 of the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights that deals with the rights of minorities, Notably, as human rights activists point out, Article 27 does not protect group rights, 
but individuals. It says persons belonging to minorities. Thereby retaining the concept of the individual as the bedrock of all human rights charters and conventions. It would be a mistake to assume, however, that the individualist thrust of these two articles resolves the structural tension inherent in liberal political theory between the individual and group rights. Now, as in the interwar period earlier, the tension between these two conceptions continues to haunt the modern state struggle to balance the protections accorded to minorities freely against the abrogation of individual rights by these communities. The question of gender equality sits at the center of this struggle. It might be useful here to recall the multiculturalism debates in the 1980s. The problem these debates articulated was never simply how to let multiple cultures bloom in a liberal polity, but to ensure the institutional conditions for the preservation and reproduction of minority traditions and ways of life. The work of a range of multicultural theorists, Will Kimlicka, Iris Young, and Jeremy Waldron, to name only a few, may be understood as an elaboration of this dilemma within liberal political theory. Notably, the issue of women's equality as an individual right, secured against religious tradition, custom, and culture, often served as a litmus test in these theorists' work to define the limits of the autonomy accorded to minority groups to practice their traditions. Notably, the ongoing tension between collective rights and individual rights haunts the current debate on religious freedom in unique ways. Before I elaborate this point, however, it is important to first place the International Religious Freedom Act passed by the U.S. Congress within the context of this history of geopolitical inequality that I have traced so far. Not only does IRFA, which is the acronym for International Religious Freedom Act, present important continuities with this earlier pattern of using religious minorities as a condition for the exercise of European power, but also creates new puzzles for human rights advocates. The International Religious Freedom Act of the U.S. Congress bears striking similarities with earlier attempts by global powers to define religious freedom in accord with their strategic interests. IRFA is noteworthy both for the powers it ascribes to the U.S. President and the conditions under which they may be enacted or suspended. Peter Danchin argues Section 402 of IRFA requires the president to identify countries as particularly severe violators of religious freedom, thereby putting them on the more punitive sanctions track. Particularly severe violations include systematic, ongoing, and egregious acts of torture, prolonged deten detention, disappearances, or flag flagrant denial of life and liberty. The Act, however, provides for a presidential waiver that allows for exceptions to be made when the violators are valuable trading partners or geopolitical allies of the United States. Consequently, states such as Saudi Arabia, Israel, and China are omitted from the current list, whereas others such as Iran and Sudan retain their place as states requiring U.S. sanction. Not unlike the European powers in the 17th and 18th century, religious liberty of Christian minorities once again emerges as a site for securing the geopolitical interests of the dominant power. IRFA is criticized by international human rights activists for creating its own mechanisms of monitoring and implementation. Rather than strengthening the role of existing international and United Nations institutions that need the support of countries like the United States. This criticism, however, 
however valid, overlooks the similarities in the structure of IRFA and many of the multilateral treaties which might have the appearance of international consensus but work on a similar principle of geopolitical inequality of strong and weak states. While the language of IRFA emphasizes the right of the individual to religious freedom, there are other mechanisms through which the protection of Christian minorities has become central to the operation of IRFA. The work of Elizabeth Castelli and Melanie McAllister shows how the passage and implementation of IRFA is deeply intertwined with the American evangelical movement. Both Castelli and McAllister point out that the evangelical coalition that helped pass IRFA is distinct from Christian activist groups of the past in two important ways. First, they widely embrace and adopt the language of human rights, religious freedom, and minority rights, which used to be the provenance of traditional leftists and liberals. This new usage is ubiquitous on Christian websites, and the charter of many of these organizations weaves in and out of the language of Article 18 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And this is one of them, a very powerful one, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, that has offices both in the United States and and Europe. A second distinguishing characteristic of this evangelical movement is their cosmopolitan and international focus, which stands in contrast to the parochialism of the old-style missionaries and once powerful moral majority. Their aim is not so much to convert heathens living in the global south as to save what they call the persecuted church in various parts of the world, particularly Christian minorities living in Muslim countries. Key to their trajectory is the transformation of the geopolitical landscape, first with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the opening of Eastern Europe to proselytization, and later the identification of Islam as the new enemy of Christianity and the United States. Consider, for example, the Freedom House, which is a conservative think tank with deep ties to the Council on Foreign Relations that played a central role in the passage of IRFA and then its subsequent implementation. The literature produced by the Freedom House, particularly its affiliate, the Hudson Institute, consistently draws a direct relationship between the necessity to defend the religious freedom of Christian minorities and the war on terror against fundamentalist Islam. Their website identifies radical Islam as the greatest threat to the security and freedom of the United States, the antidote to which they assert is the propagation of the right to religious freedom, particularly the rights of Christian minorities living in Muslim lands. Castelli quotes from their website, recent decades have have seen the rise of extreme interpretations of Islamic rule that are virulently intolerant of other traditions within Islam, as well as of non-Muslims. Many of our policy world still finds religious freedom too sensitive an issue to raise. But since 9-11, the link between our own security and freedom, between our national interests and our ideals, has never been clearer. Winning the war on terror turns on the battle of ideas, and at its heart is the principle of religious freedom. End of quote. Two of the leading figures in the Hudson Institute, Paul Marshall and Nina Shea, galvanized evangelical support for the passage of IRFA. Now, Hudson Institute is an affiliate of Freedom House, and both these characters remain major protagonists in the freedom of religion movement on behalf of the persecuted church. Both are authors of two widely read books that have acquired the status of manifestos for the persecuted church activists. 
Importantly, figures such as Nina Shea and Marshall are not marginal to the current U.S. State Department's monitoring of religious freedom worldwide. As Shea's website makes clear, she has served as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom since its founding in 1999. She was appointed as a U.S. delegate to the United Nations Commission on Human Rights by both Republican and Democratic administrations, where she directs the Center for Religious Freedom. What I want to emphasize here is that even though IRFA does not solely focus on Christian minorities, given how the politics of the passage of IRFA and its subsequent implementation has unfolded, the State Department is deeply embroiled in enforcing the rights of Christians living in non-European lands. The conditions for the exercise of this agenda is, once again, the geopolitical superiority of U.S. power and its ability to interfere and shape the discourse of religious minorities in non-Western societies. Now, you might well ask at this point as to whether I have inadvertently, or perhaps inadvertently, reduced the problem of religious liberty to the machinations of realpolitik and the game of international superpowers competing for strategic influence. Is the problem of religious minorities and their rights simply the creation of Western powers? The, what about the real persecution of religious minorities at the hands of a bigoted majority? The simple answer, of course, to this question is that religious persecution is not simply an invention of Western powers. The principle of religious liberty is an integral part of the civil and political rights assured by any polity that aspires to equality between all its citizens. Yet, in order to think about the real problems hounding religious minorities today, one cannot ignore how the debate about religious freedom has been shaped by Western powers and diplomacy and its strategic deployments since the 16th century. To ponder the question of religious liberty is also to analytically account for the transformations this power has wrought in the global south. Given the history I have traced so far, some of the pressing questions we need to consider are what are the mechanisms of governance, particularly secular international governance, through which systematic religious discrimination is institutionalized in modern societies? How is religious freedom used by minority and majority groups differently? What counts as an act of religious discrimination versus, let's say, ethnic, class, or gender discrimination? For whom? And under what circumstances? And finally, how does gender inequality inform the question of religious liberty? In order to think about these questions, let me turn to the case of Coptic Christians in Egypt. As I said, they're the largest Christian minority living in the Middle East who suffer from a variety of discriminatory practices and who re in recent years have been subject to increasing attacks by the Muslim majority. Notably, the persecution of Coptic Christians is highlighted both by the State Department Office for Religious Freedom and the persecuted church activists. When I returned to Egypt last year, after almost an eight-year hiatus to start my new research project, I was struck by an entirely new set of terms that characterized the Egyptian political landscape. While Islamist political and ethical debate saturated the media in the 1990s when I had conducted my doctoral research, I found the television, newspaper, and the blogosphere now filled with talk about religious liberty, sectarian violence, and minority rights. 
A new political vocabulary dominated the public discourse that I had not encountered before. Hurriyat al religious freedom. Hurriyat al-Mu'taqid, freedom of conscience. Izdira al-Idyan, defamation of religion. Hurriyat al-Aqaliyat, minority rights. And fitna ta'ifiyah, sectarian strife. Hardly a month went by when the press did not report a new Muslim attack on Coptic Christians and their property. In addition to the Copts, the Baha'is and the Shias and members of other minority Muslim sects have also been targeted by the state security police. Civil society organizations, mostly secular in character, who had largely avoided taking on religious issues, found themselves embroiled in mounting legal challenges in defense of the victims' civil rights. I was struck by the ubiquitous use of the term minority. It was a term that had been eschewed widely, not only by the Egyptian state to describe Coptic Christians, but also by the Coptic Orthodox Orthodox Church itself. Indeed, as is well known among those who are familiar with Egyptian history, the regnant discourse has been that Copts are an integral part of the Egyptian nation, and that to emphasize the difference risks making them marginal to the identity of the nation as such. Despite this long-standing position, it is now common to hear the term minority used by the Copts themselves. The government still continues to avoid using the term, and human rights lawyers often make the case for the protection of the Christian minority in a language that is consistent with Articles 18 and 27 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights that you saw earlier. Many Egyptians note that since 2000, Copts have increasingly taken to the streets to protest the ongoing discrimination against them by the state, the security police, and the Ministry of Interior. Copts constitute between 6 to 12 percent of Egypt's population, but suffer from a range of discriminatory practices, which include underrepresentation in positions of public office, the army and educational institutions, national laws that hinder their ability to build churches and to proselytize, state policing of religious conversion from Islam to Christianity, and lack of police protection from sectarian violence and the persecution, prosecution of its perpetrators. Given the newly acquired independence of the press and television, these demonstrations and incidents are widely reported and discussed, adding to the sense that the national unity that Egypt once boasted of is cracking at the seams. Even nostalgic nationalists realize that the old slogan which united the Egyptians against the British the crescent and the cross together for the nation, no longer holds any appeal. When asked about the reasons for the increase in Coptic activism, many Egyptians cite the increasingly powerful role the Coptic diaspora has come to play in national politics. While the government-controlled media paints the Coptic diaspora as a traitorous foreign lobby, corrosive of national unity, it is far from a unified body orchestrating local unrest. Aqbat al-Mahgar, as they have come to be called, are Copts who migrated from post-colonial Egypt to Europe and America, primarily in search of education and employment opportunities. According to a rare study published on the Coptic diaspora, there are over 20 organizations overseas that are active on behalf of Coptic rights in Egypt, most of them based in the U.S., Canada, Britain, France, Switzerland, and Australia. Since 2000, they have developed a number of Coptic websites, that publicize in Arabic and the language of the immigrated homeland various sectarian attacks on cops in the far reaches of rural Egypt, highlighting the role of the security police in aiding and abetting the violence. A key strategy of the Coptic diaspora is to lobby the European and American states of which they are citizens 
to pressurize the Egyptian government to change its discriminatory policies toward Copts. Notably, some of these diasporic groups criticized the Coptic Church for its internal corruption and for its collusion with the state and its failure to investigate and prosecute cases of sectarian violence against Copts. Many of these criticisms are well-founded. In post-colonial Egypt, the Coptic Church has consolidated its power by making an alliance with the state, systematically ex excluding secular representation of lay Copts, who might challenge the Church's monopoly to be the sole representatives of the Copts, and opposing the formation of a Coptic political party. One of the most charismatic and youngest leaders of the Coptic diaspora is Michael Munir. He stood for election in the state of Virginia on a Republican ticket in 2005, a bid he lost. His website identifies him as a leading businessman and human rights advocate, a hardworking, God-loving Christian who fled from a life of religious oppression in Egypt for America. He identifies himself as an activist on behalf of Egyptian Christians who work closely with members of the Congress, and, he, and runs the, he also runs the prominent 401c3 organization called UC Cops Association. Can't be UC, U.S. Cops Association. Sometimes you, you confuse your, your institution for the nation state, particularly in these circumstances that we are living in. Odd. Munir's friendship with the Republican Congressman Frank Wolf that he highlights on his website is of consequence here. House Representative Wolf was the primary author of the critical Wolf Specter Bill that became the basis of International Religious Freedom Act and the Evangelical Mobilization. The bill was criticized for its narrow focus on communists and Islamic governments that persecute Christians and for its portrayal of Christians as the most persecuted minority in the world. It was later combined with the Nichols-Lieberman bill to give IRFA a broader scope in its concern for religious minorities other than Christians. In 2008, Representative Wolf introduced Bill 1303 to the House with the support of 44 other members of the Congress, which demands that the Egyptian government stop its violation of human rights, minority rights, and the right to freedom of religion and expression. A large section of the bill focuses on key violations of cops in Egypt. The bill has been broadly perceived in Egypt as an effort to make at least part of the USA to Egypt, which is currently estimated at $1.7 billion, conditional on cleaning up its human rights record, particularly in regard to Copts. Munir proudly claims credit for the bill, and he has been taken to task on Egyptian television for collaborating with the pro-Israel member of the U.S. government to tarnish the image of the country in the international arena. Munir's politics, like those of his fellow diasporic activists, are complicated. On the one hand, Munir connects the plight of Coptic Christians with the lack of democracy, corruption, and authoritarianism of the Egyptian government, making common cause with other non-Muslim religious minorities and victims of the Egyptian government's brutal policies. On the other hand, he also participates in the post-9-11 Euro-American demonization of all Islamic political parties, regardless of their political leanings, often painting the reformist nonviolent Muslim Brotherhood as a jihadi terrorist organization. Not unlike Nina Shea and Paul Marshall of, the, of, the, of Hudson Institute, the agenda of protecting the Christian minorities is held to be consubstantial with the national security interests of the United States. The equation is simple. Islamists are intolerant, opposed to the values of democracy and freedom, and enemies of Christians. 
The U.S. as a Christian and democratic nation must ally itself with the persecuted Coptic Christians so as to fight the threat of radical Islam. Here the war on terror discourse is common both to the supporters of IRFA and to activists such as Michael Munir in their mobilization of anti-Muslim rhetoric to garner U.S. State Department support to protect a Christian minority. Once again, in a historical moment distinct from the one I recounted earlier, we see the fate of a religious minority become dependent on the strategic interests of an imperial power. So far in my talk, I have focused on how the international regulation of religious minorities by European powers has come to frame the question of religious liberty in modern third world societies such as Egypt. Let me now turn to how the national administration and regulation of Coptic minority in Egypt that has created a unique paradox in which collective and individual notions of religious liberty stand at odds with each other, a paradox, furthermore, that serves to entrench the inequality of gender relations in Egyptian society. One of the key flashpoints around which sectarian violence has tended to erupt in Egypt in recent years is the Egyptian state's prohibition on conversion from Islam to Christianity, while allowing and even facilitating the conversion of Copts to Islam. In rare instances where Muslim men or women have converted to Christianity, they face hostility not only from their kin and the state security police, but are unable to obtain the requisite civil documents, such as the national ID card, which is necessary for the conduct of daily life. It is only in the last two years that Copts who had converted to Islam and want to now convert back to Christianity have taken their case to the courts to have their reconversion recognized on national documents. After a couple of contradictory rulings by lower administrative courts, their case is now pending for a final ruling in Egypt's Supreme Constitutional Court. Two aspects of this problem are important to note here. One, the Egyptian state's regulation of religious conversion involves the state intimately in issues of interreligious conversion. Two, since Christian and Muslim minorities each have their own personal status laws that prohibit interreligious marriage, except in certain cases, interreligious conversion inevitably involves conflict around marriage, divorce, and child custody all of which devolve upon the inequality of gender relations within Muslim and non-Muslim communities. One of the crucial ways in which this issue plays out is when Coptic girls either marry or have romantic liaisons with Muslim men. Copts widely believe that there is a conspiracy on the part of Muslims to abduct and coerce Coptic girls to convert to Islam. A number of Coptic diasporic websites accuse the state security police of carrying out these abductions with the help of extremist Saudi elements. Despite the disputed and contested nature of these claims, the news of Coptic girls' forced conversion to Islam circulate widely and are now disseminated on American Christian TV channels working on behalf of persecuted Christians worldwide. Needless to say, given this worldwide coverage, reports of Coptic women's conversion often provoke riots and violence between Copts and Muslims. One of the most incendiary incidents of this kind occurred in late November 2004, when a 47-year-old woman by the name of Wafa Kostantin, who was married to a Coptic priest in a small village in the district of Bahira, went missing. 
Upon investigation, the security police reported that she had converted to Islam and was now living with a Muslim family in Cairo. Immediately following the news, protests broke out in the village of her residence, and Coptic demonstrators accused the security police of failing to bring Constantin back to her home after they had discovered her whereabouts. Stories circulated that she had fallen in love with her Muslim colleague who had convinced her to elope and convert. Over a thousand cops occupied the Coptic Patriarchate in Abbasia, Cairo, shouting slogans such as, religious conversion cannot be coerced, and stop the gangs of women kidnappers. When the police failed to turn her in, the Coptic Pope, Shanuda III, used his personal influence with the president to demand Constantine's return. Tensions escalated further, and the poor Pope went into isolation in protest, while rioting erupted in and around the Patriarchate in which both cops and police were injured. On the night of December 8, 2004, the security police handed over Constantine to the church, at which point, under tight state security, she was taken into custody by the church officials and sequestered from public. The church emphatically denied Constantine's conversion to Islam and charged that under the use of force and drugs, she had lapsed momentarily, but was otherwise holding firm in her faith. Since she was handed over to the church, Constantine has not been seen or heard from. In 2008, when several Muslim clerics charged in an incendiary fashion that the church had killed Constantine, church officials announced that she was alive and well. Living a secluded life in the Pope's home monastery in Wadi al Natrun, and will soon appear on Coptic television. To date, no such sightings have been reported. Now, notably, in the public debate that followed, Wafa Kustansin's alleged conversion and subsequent disappearance, the right to religious liberty was widely invoked by a variety of groups and for very different purposes. Those who condemned the church argued for Wafa Constantine's right to choose her religion. In contrast, for the church and the cops who demanded Constantine be returned to the Pope, the issue was not the individual, but the community's right to persevere against perceived Muslim aggression, as well as, as its right to defend its honor, whose ultimate repository are, of course, supposed to be the Coptic women. In reading these debates, I was struck by the lack of concern for Wafa Constantine herself. Not unlike the victims of Sati in colonial India, about whom Latamani wrote so movingly, while Kustantin emerged as the object of protection by the church, the police, and Muslim critics of the church, she seldom emerged as the subject of the discourse on religious freedom. To this day, there is little knowledge of what the reasons for Kustantin's actions were, how she felt about what she had done, and her subsequent sequestration. Between calls for the individuals versus the community's right to religious freedom, what ironically fell out of equation quickly was Constantine herself. Among the few who expressed concern for Constantine's motivations and well-being was Tariq al-Bishri, a leading Islamic reformer, a well-respected jurist, and a critic of the government. Bishri is well known for having written one of the earliest books on the rights of religious minorities in Egypt within the framework of an Islamic society grounded in principles of the Sharia. In what uh, follows, I want to highlight two critical points raised by Bishri in his article by way of concluding my reflections on the right to religious liberty. First, Bishri excoriated the church for its hypocrisy in demanding the right to religious freedom for Copts as a minority on the one hand, and violating Constantine's individual right to convert to Islam on the other. He wrote, 
the church administration violated its own oft-repeated call to uphold freedom of religion and the right to interreligious conversion regardless whether it is to or from Islam. While Bishri is right, of course, to point out the hypocrisy of the church, he fails to recognize that this contradiction between group and individual rights is a structural feature of the discourse on religious liberty, especially when invoked in relation to religious minorities. In so much as this tension remains unresolved within the discourse on religious liberty, then its resolution ultimately devolves upon the particular accord established between religious minorities and the state. The fact that women are regarded as the repositories and reproducers of a religious tradition, particularly patriarchal religious traditions, their individual rights necessarily remain subservient to those of the collectivity. Note that the International Religious Freedom Act, in its privileging of the protection of Christian communities, tends to buttress the right of patriarchal church organizations at the expense of the religious freedom of its female adherents. My second point pertains to another key argument Bishri makes in his article. He condemns the Egyptian state for violating its own laws by handing Constantine over to the church, which has no legal or constitutional authority over an Egyptian citizen, regardless of his or her religion. For Bishri, the church under the current pope has usurped extra-legal powers with the acquiescence of state authorities, such that it can claim to be sovereign over all cops regardless of the fact that they are first and foremost subjects of the nation-state. Bishri argues that in capitulating to the pressures of the church, the Egyptian government violated Constantine's rights as an Egyptian citizen. While Bishri is right to draw attention to the fact that the ability to exercise one's rights is predicated on the sovereignty of the nation-state, he fails to mention that the religious rights particularly, I mean, I, I mean particularly religious rights of a citizen, crucially devolve upon the historical relationship established between the state and various religious formations. Here, the complicated historical relationship forged between the state and its various religious communities in Egypt is critical. Under Ottoman rule, Coptic Christians were regarded as ahladimma, a term that connotes the obligation of the state to protect the people of the book, including Jews and Christians. And this, this mandate included the individual's life, property, and freedom of religion and worship. In exchange, the Demis were required to be loyal to the empire and pay a poll tax complementary to the Islamic tax paid by Muslims. Unlike the secular liberal conception of freedom of conscience based on the individual, the freedom accorded to the, Demi, to the Demis to practice their religion was conceived in collective terms. This meant that each Dhimmi community living under Muslim rule was free to manage its own religious affairs, including matters relating to family law, especially marriage, inheritance, and divorce, which were regarded as an inextricable part of religion. The freedom accorded to Dhimmi communities assumed a world in which inequality was regarded as the norm. Just as women were inferior to men, slaves to free men, non-Muslims were also regarded as the political and social unequals of Muslims. In other words, the collective freedom to practice one's religion in this earlier period did not presume the liberal individualist notion of, inequal, of, of equality that makes the modern conception of freedom of conscience possible. While many aspects of this older system were slowly transformed over the course of the 19th century, the judicial and legislative autonomy of most religious communities continued to be maintained. 
This state of affairs was radically transformed with the formation of the modern nation-state with its requirement that all citizens be subject to a uniform legal code. In post-colonial Egypt, the relative autonomy of non-Muslim communities, including the Coptic Christian community, has come to be circumscribed to matters pertaining to family law. As a result of this history, Christian family law and the fate of Coptic Christian identity have become indelibly tied with each other placing gender relations at the center uh, of the struggle for religious freedom. In so much as family law defines the one arena in which the Christian collectivity can claim legal autonomy from the state, then any discourse about the exercise of the right to religious freedom necessarily engages this domain, regardless whether this engagement is one of rejection, embrace, or reform. Furthermore, To practice one's religion freely as a minority is not simply an individualist exercise, but ties you necessarily, given this history, to what it means for the community to preserve its domain and space of autonomy as a minority. Finally, let me close by summarizing my my central argument. I've tried to show that the right to religious freedom cannot be understood simply as a political moral good that the system of secular liberal governance bestows upon modern individuals. Rather, this liberal right, especially when it pertains to religious minorities, is saturated with the exercise of various forms of power, the geopolitical power of strong Western states over weaker ones, the power of the sovereign state to forge differential relationships with its minority and majority populations, And finally, the power of ecclesiastical authorities over its religious subjects as members of a minority community. The question of gender inequality sits at the center of many of these struggles, once again reminding us that to think with gender is also to think differently about religious difference and its place in our world today. Thank you.